Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please stand for our opening prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for the great gift of faith, which opens our eyes to see life differently now because of Jesus Christ, who he is and who we are called to become in him and through him and with him by the power of your spirit. Lord, we invite the presence of your Holy Spirit here in this assembly this evening. Open our eyes more fully to see the implications of our own vocation and the call you've given us in this third Christian millennium. Open our ears to hear your word. Let it take deep root within us, changing us and transforming us and making us more like your son. And open our hearts, Lord, and come and take up residence within them. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the privilege of even calling you Father. And we give you glory and commend this evening to you. In the name of Jesus, who is Lord, and may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon us and remain with us. Amen. Amen. Our speaker tonight uh, is a deacon of the Diocese of Richmond, Virginia, where he currently serves at St. Stephen the Martyr Catholic Church in Chesapeake. Deacon Keith graduated from the Franciscan University of Steubenville and earned his JD at the University of Pittsburgh. He also has a master's degree in sacred theology from the John Paul II Institute of the Lateran University and received honorary doctorates from the St. Thomas University and the National Clergy Council. Deacon Keith is a member of the Virginia State Bar and has practiced law for 32 years, mostly focusing on constitutional law. He has made several appearances before the U.S. Supreme Court on pro-life and religious freedom cases. Please join me in welcoming Deacon Keith Fournier. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deacon Sabatino, for inspiring me. Inspiring me by the fact that you're coming out on a Sunday evening to grow in your faith, to learn more about what it means to be a Catholic and to live in the third Christian millennium as missionaries, because it is a new missionary age, and you are part of the mission of the church. Now, I will say those who come out next week will show heroic sacrifice. <laughs> When I said yes, I had no idea that it was Super Bowl Sunday, but that's okay. And I appreciate my brother Deacon's admonitions. I feel a little bit better because perhaps like some of you, when the Steelers were knocked out, it didn't bother me as much. <laughs> I am happy to be here with you tonight and to speak of a topic of great importance. Uh, my work, and I'm a PhD candidate at Catholic U, is in moral theology. And that's what I'll be speaking about. Now, one of the things I like to do when I talk about moral theology or any aspect of our wonderful faith is to do a little bit of a show and tell before I get started. Uh, we've raised five children, we have six grandchildren. Those of you who've raised children know what a show and tell is, right? Well, I brought a bunch of books, books that perhaps you are all familiar with, but these will be the books that I will be referring to, though not reading from. Of course, 
the first source of teaching for all of us, the canon, the measuring stick, the sacred scripture, the Bible. Next, this absolutely wonderful resource called the Catechism of the Catholic Church. We are so privileged to have such a well-researched, well-compiled catechesis on the faith. We have had catechisms from the very beginning of the church. Uh, Deacon mentioned the first, the Didache. This is such an excellent source, and it should be falling apart along with your Bible as you continue to grow in the faith. I will be referring to sections of this catechism throughout the evening, particularly part three, Life in Christ, which speaks about the moral life, the call to happiness, the call to human freedom, the call to human flourishing, and the call to holiness. In addition, of course, I will be mentioning some of the documents of the Second Vatican Council, particularly Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, which in paragraph 22 and paragraph 24 really gives us a summary of the church's teaching on the moral life and on the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Next week, when I do part two of this talk, I will be speaking on the social doctrine or the social teaching of the church, which, by the way, is an aspect of the moral teaching of the church. Because as Christians, we understand fully that we are called to communion and called into the social order. So I will be referring to the compendium of the social doctrine of the church. For those of you who perhaps don't know, and I think probably here most of you do, but I find when I speak in other parts of the country, people don't know, we now have one of the greatest resources on the social doctrine of the Catholic Church in this compendium. We no longer have to rely on the, quote, experts on what the church really <coughs> teaches in its social doctrine. If you want to find out, you go to this book. Well-indexed, just like the catechism, with great footnotes, and I highly recommend in the library of any Catholic serious about their faith, particularly given the fact that we're called into the social order in a hostile time, get a copy of the compendium of the social doctrine of the church. Now, a couple of other little items. Many of you probably know that there is a cliff note to the catechism, this little book. Don't let it substitute for the catechism. But it is helpful. It's very helpful, particularly as you want to find something really quickly. That's, that's the, the compendium, the abridged version that helps you to study the catechism. I brought two encyclical letters. There are many, as you know. Encyclical simply means circulating. In the early church, there weren't printing presses, and there certainly was not an internet. So the bishops would write letters, and they would circulate. And that is, in fact, where encyclical letters began. And we have been privileged to live under the magisterium and the pontificates of Blessed John Paul II and now Pope Benedict XVI. And they have written some absolutely wonderful letters. And I think it's important that Catholics understand these letters are for us, for us to read and to study and to pray over. And they're very readable, particularly under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The tendency can be to think, oh my goodness, I'm not a theologian. Well, remember what a theologian is in the Catholic tradition. One of my favorite definitions of theologian comes from a monk of the second century, 
of Agrius of Pontus, who said that a theologian is one who rests his head on the breast of Christ. One who prays is a theologian. And it brings the image of John the beloved disciple at the Last Supper, huh? And in our tradition, some of the doctors of the church never had any formal theological study. So there may be some budding theologians here. And the two encyclical letters that I will reference are the Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae, by Blessed John Paul II, and the Splendor of Truth, Veritatus Splendor. Now, I tend to use the English translation because I think using the, I mean, of the title, because using the Latin, I find, puts people off. I mean, I had to study Latin for my doctoral work. It was grueling. <laughs> but I just think it's important that we communicate from these documents comfortably and in a way that people understand. Just a quick little story. Many, many years ago, when I was a young man and had more hair and it was brown, I did a radio program at Steubenville. And I had as my guest, and this was literally now, decades ago, uh, Dr. James Dobson. And we were talking back then, and this was before evangelical and Catholic collaboration had grown to the point it has, thank God, about the family, as you can imagine. And in our dialogue online, uh, or on the radio, I quoted from Christian Family in the Modern World by John Paul II. And I said, you know, the Pope has written a beautiful book on the family called Christian Family in the Modern World. And Dr. Dobson said, what? The Pope's written a book on the family? And as I quoted from it, I promised to send him a copy of it, and I did. Now, if I had said Familiarius Consortio, <laughs> so I used the English title. Uh, and by the way, just in case you don't know, the titles for encyclical letters come from the first sentence of the letter. When I found that out, that was very enlightening to me. Because sometimes you wonder, where did this title come from? These are the two I will be referring to. And I'm getting to the last of my show-and-tell books. A lot of times people are looking for good summaries of the real moral teaching of the church. The real moral teaching. Not the, quote, spirit of Vatican II, but the real Vatican II. Properly understood through the magisterium. And some of my favorites, resource books, are, for example, The Sources of Christian Ethics by Father Surveys Pinkiers. And there's a very small summary of it called Morality, the Catholic View, which I highly recommend. I have another one here, but I won't hold that up. Next week in particular, I'll touch upon it a little bit this evening, but next week in particular, I'll be speaking about the natural law. And I always recommend Russell Hittinger's The First Grace. Russell Hittinger has written one of the best little summaries of classical natural law thinking. And I must confess to being a classical natural law theorist. I have great respect for the so-called new natural law thinkers, but I don't think there's anything better than going back to the sources. And Russell Hittinger has one of the best books. That's my show and tell. My talk tonight, I'm calling, popularly, Fractured Freedom and Human Flourishing. Fractured Freedom and Human Flourishing. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, in its section on morality, gives us a great summary of the moral life. Paragraph 1700, it sets out all of the various articles that follow and gives one sentence to describe them. The dignity of the human person is rooted in his creation in the image and likeness of God, Article 1. It is fulfilled in his vocation, 
to divine beatitude, Article 2. It is essential to a human being freely to direct himself to this fulfillment, Article 3. By his deliberate action, Article 4, the human person does or does not conform to the good promised by God and attested by moral conscience. Article 5. Human beings make their own contribution to their interior growth. They make their whole sentient and spiritual lives into means of this growth. Article 6. With the help of grace, they grow in virtue. Article 7. Avoid sin. And if they sin, they entrust themselves, as did the prodigal son, Luke 15, to the mercy of our Father in heaven, Article 8. In this way, they attain to the perfection of charity. That is a summary of Catholic moral teaching. That is a summary of Catholic moral teaching. Now, in going through that quickly, I want to give you an assignment. Go home, and since you have a week off, open up the catechism and read through those sections. What you will find is an absolutely beautiful treatment of the moral life. You see, we tend to think of the moral life as something from the outside rather than from the inside, calling us to freedom and to human flourishing and to joy and to beatitude and to the final joy that comes from living in communion with the Lord. We live in an age that's enamored with false concepts of choice. And in this age, the Catholic Church insists that there are some choices that are always and everywhere wrong. She teaches that what is chosen not only affects the world around us, but changes the chooser. Catechism quotes a beautiful passage from uh, one of the early fathers, a Cappadocian father, Gregory of Nyssa. Now, human life is always subject to change. It needs to be born anew. But here, birth does not come about by a foreign intervention, as is the case with bodily beings. It's the result of a free choice. Thus, we are, in a certain way, our own parents, creating ourselves as we will by our decisions. Now, let me read a fuller quote from the same Gregory of Nyssa. It's abridged in the Catechism. We are, in a sense, our own parents, and we give birth to ourselves by our own free choice of what is good. Such a choice becomes possible for us when we have received God into ourselves and become children of God, children of the Most High. On the other hand, if what the Apostle calls the form of Christ has not been produced in us, we abort ourselves. The man of God must reach maturity. Moral theologians and philosophers often refer to this concept that our choices really change us as the reflective nature of human choice. Freedom has consequences, and our choices make us become the persons we become. The very capacity to make choices is what makes us human persons. It reflects the very imago dei, the image of God within us. We are created in his image and capable of choosing. And what we choose really matters. As the fathers of the Second Vatican Council wrote in Gaudium et Spes, 
Authentic freedom is an outstanding manifestation of the divine image within man. What the church teaches is that the image of God is reflected in us, and part of that is our very capacity to choose. But it brings with us some great challenges because our freedom has been fractured by sin. And so our capacity to choose what is good and what is true has been wounded. And we need to be redeemed, to be healed, to be converted, so that our capacity to choose what is good and what is true is once again alive and active within our lives. There's a sobering passage in the Catechism I want to read. It's paragraph 1861. It's very short. It reminds us that mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. Think about that. Mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. So it is what we choose that matters. In other words, authentic human freedom cannot be realized in decisions against God and the natural law. Blessed John Paul, in Faith and Reason, another one of his wonderful encyclical letters on the moral life, remind us of that. He wrote, it is not just that freedom is a part of the act of faith, it is absolutely required. Indeed, it is faith that allows individuals to give consummate expression to their own freedom. Put differently, freedom is not realized in decisions made against God. Choosing the good is the path to the fullness of authentic human freedom. St. Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 5 and verse 1 of that wonderful letter. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And he warned them, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And then he goes on to instruct them on this reflexive understanding of human choice. When we choose what is evil, we fall prey, the apostle taught, in Romans 6.17, to the slavery of sin. So any discussion of freedom or choice is a discussion of moral theology. Because moral theology deals with the evaluation of human actions and the interrelationship of faith and reason. We live in an age, in Western culture in particular, that has embraced a deficient notion of choice as a power to do whatever one desires without any reference to any evaluative or objective norms to govern human behavior. Or maybe some contrived reference to a self-constructed individualist compass through which the individual considers whether the particular choice might harm another person. Sometimes this is covered over by a false notion of conscience, which is nothing but an elevation of human feelings and selfishness. This kind of minimalist norm is enslaving the culture and is rejected by the Christian. It's utilitarian. It turns persons into objects of use. And it has so infected the West that it has in fact fueled what Blessed John Paul rightly called the culture of death. Think about the utter horror of the fact that the very word choice is used to justify the intentional taking of the innocent life of our first neighbor 
in the first home of the whole human race. It shows you how depraved and decayed Western culture has become because we have forgotten God. Little side note here. One of my heroes and a friend is Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who's now with the Lord. And when I first met Bernie, I remember him telling me, and this was one of the things he carried as a very heavy weight, of the days in which he and his colleagues in what would become the National Abortion Rights Action League sat around and came up with the notion of using the word choice to sell abortion on demand. He did penance for that for years. My friends, what we choose matters. And in the West, we have now consigned whole categories of people using the positive law to death in the name of choice. And we place the police power of the state behind this error, calling it a right. And I know as a lawyer, in particular, somebody who did constitutional law for a number of years, how evil that is. And we found it in this so-called penumbra of the zone of privacy. But nonetheless, the West and America is enamored with the word choice, treating it with an idolatrous kind of esteem, dancing around it as a new golden calf. It is in the midst of that decay that the magisterium of our church, in spite of two millennia of people, filled with people both from within and without, seeking to change her teaching, has continued to insist that some choices are always and everywhere wrong. Catholic moral teaching offers us a unique insight as well and challenges us to live differently as a result of it. The very act of choosing places us in a relationship with what we choose and changes us. In the Splendor of Truth, Veritatis Splendor, Blessed John Paul also quoted Gregory of Nyssa, which I began with, and emphasized this important aspect of choice. He did so because he, throughout his magisterium, following in the footsteps of the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, realized the dangers that have been set loose by errant teaching in the arena of moral theology, often referred to as proportionalism or sometimes consequentialism, predicated on a thin notion of freedom as a kind of freedom from any absolute moral norms. This teaching, unfortunately, provided cover for a lot of misguided moral theologians in the church. And they, in turn, confused many of the faithful who accepted their teaching and bore the bad fruit of it. They presumed they were speaking for the church. Proportionalists, consequentialists, maintained that there were ontic or pre-moral evils which one may choose when considering the morality of an action. If such a choice was made for somehow the greater good, and they called this course of action moral, the definitive response to this error was the splendor of truth, veritat of splendor. And if you don't have a copy of it, get it. Get it, study it, read it, ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see the gift that it truly is. 
Blessed John Paul II had a commitment from the Council on to develop what he called an adequate anthropology, an understanding of the nature of the human person redeemed in Christ. And that really, in my opinion, was his life project. That really is what we call the theology of the body, but what human love and the divine plan is all about. Setting forth an adequate anthropology, an understanding of the human person redeemed in Christ. Called to communion, called to love, called to gift. But Veritatis Splendor was released on August 6th. And I remember thinking to myself, because, you know, the release of encyclicals on a particular feast day are normally not an accident. August 6th was the Feast of the Transfiguration, which certainly underscored the very core of this encyclical letter, that all of us are called to a complete transformation in Jesus Christ. The encyclical affirmed that what we choose determines who we become informs our experience of life in this world and paves the path to our eternal destiny and fulfillment in the beatific vision. Splendor of Truth rejected whole cloth the errors of proportionalism and authoritatively reasserted Catholic moral theology as rooted in the patristic sources in a fresh way for the third millennium. It was a response to the call of the Second Vatican Council to reroute moral teaching, first within the sacred scriptures. And it provides a wonderful biblical framework for teaching the moral life. For those who have read it, it's the encounter between Jesus and the rich young man. And the rich young man could not give away everything to the Lord and find the freedom that that brings. And so he went away sad. It uses this story as a framework, a hermeneutic, if you will, to explain the moral theology of the Catholic Church, that we are called because we're created in the image of God who has given himself completely and freely to us in his Son, to give ourselves completely and freely back to him through his Son. And in that exchange, that's where we find human flourishing, human freedom, and happiness. And by the way, the moral life is about happiness. It's about being happy. The Beatitudes, for example, many of us don't know the word Beatitude itself could be translated happiness. And when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it means happy are the poor in spirit. That when we learn to live this way of life, the Christian way of life, it brings us joy. The Splendor of Truth is a clarion call to explain once again what moral theology is truly all about and to assert once again the call to continual conversion in Christ, to be made new and to have our fractured freedom fixed by a splint called the cross and to have our entire human person baptized in and through the Spirit to develop an ethic of virtue and transformation and growth in holiness. The other letter that I held up earlier was the Gospel of Life. 
Again, the great manifesto of our age for the pro-life movement, but also a great exposition of the moral life. And in the Gospel of Life, Blessed John Paul warned prophetically of what he called a counterfeit notion of freedom. And using the phrase culture of death, he coalesced all the current social evils from abortion, which is always and everywhere wrong because it's intrinsically evil, to modern slaveries, included pornography and drug addiction, to a disdain for the poor. I mean, think about it. Why do we love the poor? Because they're created in the image of God and they have a human dignity which must be recognized. And a cheapening of all life. He coalesced all of that in that phrase, culture of death. So, at the heart of understanding Catholic moral teaching is understanding the true nature of freedom. He warned in The Splendor of Truth of the death of true freedom. And he reasserted in the Gospel of Life the necessity of having freedom connected to truth, that it's an essential link. Our freedom, the Church teaches, is patterned on God's freedom. And we only grow in freedom when we choose what is true and what is good. The New Testament is filled with examples of this relationship between freedom and truth. That we become who we are based on what we choose. Think about it. Two examples suffice. Matthew 5, 28. We become adulterers when we look at a woman with lust. And what comes out of our heart, and heart is the biblical center where we make our choices. What comes out of our heart makes us unclean. Mark 7. Our very capacity as human beings to make choices reflects the image of God within us. In Joy and Hope, Gaudium et Spes, it's put in these words, authentic freedom is an outstanding manifestation of the divine image within man. Now, Father Surveys Pinkers, who I held up earlier this evening, is one of the good moral theologians of our age. And he developed a whole way of articulating this whole approach to the moral life as a call, as partakers of the divine nature, as the Apostle Peter wrote in his second letter, to progress in holiness through having our capacity to choose healed by grace. And in his study on Catholic moral theology, the big book that I held up, he said this, and this is one of the longer quotes, but it's a beautiful quote. He spoke of two broad types of organization of moral material. Moral theories based on the question of happiness and the virtues are characteristic of the patristic and great scholastic periods, while theories of obligation and commandments predominate in the modern area. In attempting to reconstruct and trace the internal logic animating these two theories, and to order their elements, we are led as the taproot to varying concepts of freedom. For what he called a morality of obligation, it's a freedom of indifference, and I'll come back to that. For moral systems based on happiness and virtue, it's what we call a freedom for excellence. What Father Pinkers is trying to say in using those two phrases, freedom of indifference 
and freedom of excellence, is to draw a distinction between an approach to the moral life based only on obligation and an approach to the moral life rooted in an understanding of the dynamic conversion that is at the heart of Christian living. A freedom for what he calls excellence. As much as I admire his writing and glad to have studied so much of it, I'm not sure excellence communicates what he's trying to say because we tend to think of excellence as doing things perfectly. What he's trying to say is being happy and being fulfilled, experiencing human flourishing. In a taproot system, he said, the root of the plant grows vertically deep into the soil, stabilizing the plant and providing a central system for all other growth. In other words, how we view the exercise of human freedom in the moral enterprise, in our choices every day, will root how we view ourselves and how we understand the moral life. Now this understanding is really part of the renewal of moral theology in our day, the good renewal. And it is a return to the patristic understanding of moral theology. And the call for all Christians to be transformed continually by grace through participating in the full life of the church, through prayer, through the study of the scripture, through frequent partaking of the sacraments, and in particular, through the Holy Eucharist. That we are Christian becomings, if you will, continually saying yes to the Lord's invitation and being transformed by grace. And that our life is a classroom where we are instructed in the new way of living, and not only that, but given the capacity to live it. The early fathers talked about this a lot. And I'm thrilled that you study the early fathers around here. One of the great teachers, the Bishop of Lyon, Irenaeus, used the term recapitulation in Christ. And basically what he was trying to communicate was this concept, which is at the heart of the Christian life. That redemption is not simply a matter of being saved from, but saved for. Not simply a matter of being freed from, which it is, freed from sin and the law of sin and death and disordered passions and all of the things that accompany sin, but freed for living a new life in Christ, even beginning now. That's what he meant by recapitulation. And this is what the church is reasserting in its wonderful teaching on the moral life in our age. Father Pinker is called a freedom for excellence. He tried to give some analogies in that book on ethics. Let me use a couple just to try to tease this out a little bit. In chapter 15 of his book, he discussed the notion of freedom turning first to the study of music and then to the study of language, both of which involve progress through practice. Now, this kind of approach was used by Aristotle and by some of the great Greek thinkers. And basically what he's trying to communicate is that freedom is a spiritual capacity, an ordering of the human person, kind of inner orientation toward truth and goodness. And the more we develop it, the more we practice it, the freer we become. In fact, that's what the Catechism says. The more one does what is good, the freer one becomes. Now, it isn't our own human effort alone, although it is involved, but it is the grace of God at work within us. 
making us more and more and more like Jesus, who is the new man, the perfect man, the image of the invisible God who has been revealed for us. One of the most quoted passages of the Second Vatican Council is from paragraph 22 from Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world. And I hesitated using the full paragraph. I put it in my little folder here rather than putting it in my three-ring binder. But I feel like I should because I think it is so profound. And so I'm going to ask you to bear with me as I read through it. And this is paragraph 22. Now, this paragraph was cited more than any other paragraph by Blessed John Paul II. And following suit, Benedict the Builder, and that's who I believe he is, continues to use it to try to communicate the heart of the Christian vocation. Listen closely, and, and please, when you study it this week, and this is another assignment, go to the documents of Vatican II and read paragraph 22 of Gaudium et Spes. The citations in this are all to the scripture and to the early fathers. And here's what the paragraph says. The truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. Let me just stop there. Only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. Now we use the term mystery in theology. And I find it's hard for people to grasp what we mean by it. Because we Westerners tend to think of a mystery as a puzzle to be solved, huh? like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. Whereas in the Greek, mysterion meant something much, much more profound. Something so profound that words itself cannot even begin to explain it. And that's the sense in which it's used in that line. That is in the mystery of the incarnate word in Jesus, that the mystery of man, the very meaning of our existence is revealed, takes on light goes on, for Adam, the first man, was a figure of him who was to come, namely Christ the Lord. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. Let me read that again. Christ, the final Adam, and that's right out of the New Testament, St. Paul speaks of Christ as the final Adam, the second Adam, the one through whom the new creation came. I mean, think about that. The fathers thought about this all the time. We read in the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis, creation, the first creation, came through the word. And then in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The new creation comes through the incarnate word. In Jesus, creation begins again. He's the final Adam, the first fruit, St. Paul says, of a new order. And we're part of that. And if we want to see who we can become, we look to him. Now, for us to get our arms around this, we have to understand the implications of the incarnation. Jesus became fully man. Fully God and fully man. And in his sacred humanity, the entire human experience has been transformed. 
One of the early fathers put it this way, whatever was not assumed was not healed. Everything was assumed. So our entire experience as human persons, our emotions, yes, even our passions, disordered though they may be through sin, can be reordered in Christ and made new. And this is what redemption's all about. And redemption will not be complete until what? We're raised from the dead. And we receive a glorified body like his. The mystery, the meaning of our life is revealed in Jesus. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. Goes on, he who is the image of the invisible God, quoting Colossians 1.15, is himself the perfect man. Let me stop here for a moment. It's another one of those words in theology that we don't understand. Perfect. But we need to come to understand it because you can't get around it. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, I can remember as a much younger man reading this and thinking, oh my gosh, I can never be perfect. Because we tend to think of perfect as doing everything in a sort of a mathematical precision, huh? Whereas in the Greek, perfect is teleos. And it can be rendered complete, fulfilled. So, to use a mundane analogy, a screwdriver is teleos when it's screwing a screw. A hammer is teleos when it's hammering a nail, huh? A human person, you and me, are teleos when we are growing into the image of Jesus Christ, the new man, and becoming more and more like him, feeling as he felt, and he felt. He had the whole array of human emotions, even anger, righteous anger. He wept over the loss of a friend. He had the whole arena of emotions, passions, fully human, a man like us in all things, the author of Hebrews says, but sin, there's the key. And we are called to grow in perfection ourselves, to grow in completion by grace. In order for that to happen, we need to be free from sin. And the only way to be free from sin is through him. But that process of being freed from sin is not a one-time matter, but a continual invitation as we cooperate with grace and take full advantage of all that God gives us in our life in his body, the church, for continual conversion and transformation. Let me just grab, I'm not going to read the whole paragraph, but you can see it's profound. I'm going to read just a couple more sentences. Since human nature as he assumed it was not annulled, by that very fact, it has been raised up to a divine dignity in our respect too. For by his incarnation, the Son of God has united himself in some fashion with every man. He worked with human hands. He thought with a human mind. He acted by human choice. Remember all I've been talking about tonight. That at the real center of understanding moral theology is understanding choice. He acted by human choice. And so how he chose is how we are now called to choose. And he always chose the Father's will. And that's what we're called to do. And that's where we will find our perfection, our completion, our freedom.
He thought with a human mind, acted by human choice, and loved with a human heart. Born of the Virgin Mary, he has truly been made one of us, like us in all things except sin. As an innocent lamb, he merited for us life by the free shedding of his own blood. In him, God reconciled us to himself. And among ourselves, from bondage to the devil and sin, he delivered us so that each one of us can say with the apostle, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me, Galatians 2.20. By suffering for us, he not only provided us with an example for our imitation, but he blazed a trail. And if we follow it, life and death are made holy and now take on a new meaning. The Christian man, Christian man, Christian woman used generically, conform to the likeness of that son who is the firstborn of many brothers, received the first fruits of the Spirit, by which he becomes capable of discharging the new law of love. Through this Spirit, who is the pledge of our inheritance, and I'm not stopping to give you the scripture sites, but they're replete throughout, Ephesians 1.14, the whole man is renewed from within, even to the achievement of the redemption of the body, Romans 8.23. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also bring to life your mortal bodies because of his spirit who dwells in you. Pressing upon the Christian to be sure are the need and duty to battle against evil through manifold tribulations and even to suffer death. But linked with the Paschal mystery, patterned on the dying Christ, he will hasten forward to resurrection in the strength which comes from hope. Such is the mystery of man, and it is a great one, as seen by believers in the light of Christian revelation. Through Christ and in Christ, the riddles of sorrow and death grow meaningful. Apart from his gospel, they overwhelm us, but Christ has risen from the dead, destroying death by his death. He has lavished life upon us, so that as sons in the Son, we can cry out now in the Spirit, Abba, Father. That's moral theology. That's the Christian vocation. That's Christian living. And when we are able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to begin to comprehend this and actually start living it, that gives us the capacity to participate in the ongoing redemptive mission of Jesus through his church. And people are drawn to the church, as they always have been because it is the body of Christ, risen Christ, continuing his mission. Virtue theory in the moral life emphasizes the road to enabling this to happen through the development of habitus, powers of excellence, that are formed within us as we cooperate with grace. What is called virtue theory affirms the work of the Holy Spirit, the efficacy of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the participative dimension of our developing the spiritual fruits in our life. And understanding that we are called to continual conversion. The fruits of the Spirit are set forth in Galatians 5. The gifts of the Spirit are given to us by grace through the sacraments. And they are meant to continue the process of conversion in our life so that we continue to change. Now, this is a moral theology rooted in another 10-cent word, a teleology. 
an understanding of the meaning of our life, we are called to happiness, to beatitude. The Catechism has a beautiful section which breaks open the Beatitudes. I don't have time to do that tonight, but I call your attention to it as you study the Catechism this week, especially in light of some of the things perhaps I've been sharing, that when we begin to live this way of life set forth in the Beatitudes, we can find true happiness and freedom because choosing what is good and what is true empowers us to live differently. The more one does what is good, the Catechism says, the freer one becomes. And there is no true freedom except in the service of what is good and what is just. The choice to disobey and do evil is an abuse of freedom. This is the Catechism. And leads to the slavery of sin. Thank you very much. Thank David. you. practiced there was something called exposure where infants were left out on rocks if you didn't want them okay and we marched into these cultures and we made the kind of arguments we need to make now and one of the problems we have of course and you're pointing out something of truth in this age Benedict uh, when he was Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger referred to it as the dictatorship of relativism relativism says there is no truth you got your truth and my truth which means there's no truth I believe that the natural law teaching of the Catholic Church is the great jewel of this age. And we need to understand it and learn how to make natural law arguments. One of the reasons I recommended Russell Hittinger, the first grace, and of course next week I'll talk about the new natural law theorists. I respect them, uh, Robbie George and Finnis and Boyle and all of them. But I happen to be a classical natural law, Thomas Aquinas going all the way back. And I think we need to be ready to make natural law arguments. Let me give an overly simplified example, and then we can move on to another question. How do we know that there are certain norms that should guide our behavior at all? For example, let's just say next Wednesday, my, my neighbor has kept me up all Tuesday night, and I'm, I'm angry, and I want to go next door, knock on his door, and shoot him. I know I can't do that. I know it's wrong. How do I know it's wrong? Well, Paul taught in Romans 1 because there's a law written on our heart, and the church has always taught that. We need to be able to make those kinds of arguments. There are certain things we know to be wrong, and there's more of them than we want to realize. The most obvious is the truth about the dignity of every human person from conception to natural death. We know, and medical science has confirmed what our conscience long ago taught us, the child in the womb is one of us. You don't even hear the proponents of the culture of death any longer making the kind of strained arguments they made for so many years. They're acknowledging they're taking human life. So we need to be able to develop natural law arguments to defend the great issues of our age. Life, marriage and the family and society founded upon it, and our bishops are giving us a really good example. Let me commend to you, for example, a talk that was given just the 24th, which was, what, three days ago, four days ago, by uh, Cardinal-designate uh, Dolan, who is a champion, just a wonderful man. And he spoke at Loyola Law School. And it's on Whispers in the Logia, by the way. You can read the whole talk. He gives you an example of using the natural law. And we're finding our bishops really taking the lead in this. But it's critically important for the lay faithful to make this argument. There's another reason. You mentioned our Protestant friends, and by the way, we're in the trenches with them.
but they rely on us for this now because they're facing the challenge of this culture as well, a secularist culture. You can't quote chapter and verse. It doesn't have any moral authority to a secularist or to a, you know, I, actually the secularist. I'd rather deal with an old classical pagan than I would as a secularist. So we need to develop natural law arguments. And remember, natural law is a participation in God's law. We may not make that statement to our secularist friends, but it is. And there are things we know to be true, and they have always guided our behavior for a truly just and civil society. That's a quick answer. That's a tease to next week when we really will be talking about these kinds of issues. And if I could just add also Father Spitzer's book, Father Spitzer just spoke Absolutely, for us, yes. uh, Ten Universal Principles might be very helpful uh, in that regard. Thank you very much for your talk. An issue that's very much on the minds of Catholics these days is the recent HHS ruling mandating insurance companies to provide contraception and uh, aborted patients, things of that sort, and insurance policies, and people who have insurance to accept them. Assuming this ruling stands, how should we as Catholics respond to that? You know, these questions are making me think I should have flipped my talks and done my social teaching talk first. I wanted to lay the groundwork for the moral life and then talk about social teaching, which is a social expression of it. I wrote an article, I'm the editor of Catholic Online, by the way, catholic.org, and I wrote an article the day after the HHS mandate came out on the new Caesar and the rising tide of Catholic resistance. And that's what we need is a Catholic resistance. And I want to tell you, as somebody who's been a culture warrior for decades, we are living in a wonderful time insofar as our bishops are really taking the lead. You look at what Cardinal-designate Dolan did and what he said. You look at the letters being released by the bishops all over the country. We must resist. This is an edict. The bishops use that term, by the way. It's not charged rhetoric from my pen. It is an edict from an unjust Caesar and it cannot be obeyed. It's a violation of the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights, violation of the free exercise of religion, but it's also a violation of principles of justice revealed in the natural law, and we will resist, and we are resisting. And I think there's a silver lining in this cloud. I've never seen the solidarity among Catholics and with the leadership of our hierarchy that I'm seeing emerge as a result of this. And make no mistake, this HHS mandate is unjust and would require that we violate our conscience. It mandates contraception, including abortifacients, sterilization, referral to abortion, requires health insurance policies to offer these services, so it violates our uh, free exercise and, and uh, First Amendment rights as well because our dollars would be used to promote uh, this kind of absolutely immoral behavior. So what do I think we ought to do? Line up behind our bishops. What we need is a new Catholic action led by lay men and women. We've been talking about this for decades. What I'm suggesting is the moment has come. The moment has come. And I think we are about to head into perhaps one of the most interesting periods in our recent history over the next 12 to 18 months because the current administration picked the wrong fight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good night. God bless you all. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, 
please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.